Greetings and happy Wednesday. This is the Desiree Show of First Downs and Flip Tricks on Dash Radio. It is the 17th day of April and I'm super excited. I've gotten a phenomenal man in studio, um, a special guest. I mean, he's appeared in dozens and dozens of videos, uh, dozens of covers, dozens upon dozens. He's even garnished a gold medal in the X Games, which he doesn't even talk about. Um, Trans World Skateboarding, 2002 Skateboarder of the Year. He's a filmer, a director, he's a photographer, he's an entrepreneur, um, and the list of accolades could go on and I could and cover an entire show just listing all the things that this amazing man has done. I'm super excited to welcome the chief, the one and only Mr. Jamie Thomas. Hello, how are you? I'm good. Thanks so much for making the trek, and I do mean the trek to get up here. Uh, it's my pleasure. Um, that was quite a list. I'm a little embarrassed. Uh that was the abbreviated version. <laughs> and, you know, and I had to start off with that song. Time Has Come Today? Yes. Yeah, I love that song. The Chamber Brothers. Yeah, you know, and we're going to talk a little bit about that more, I think, in the few minutes. But uh, music is, for me, always like skate parts, uh, snowboarding parts, uh, memories of road trips, motivation. Like music is such a, a strong point for me um, with sports. You know, I listen to your parts and, and music is is the baseline uh, for, I don't know, of just these great memories that I'm hearing from your, you know, from your parts as well. Yeah, I feel like, you know, music and movies and music just put to something, um, whether it be skateboarding or movies, that it's very memorable and it kind of create, it helps create the mo emotion that you're trying to, and the point you're trying to get across. And I think, I mean, we've all used music for ages and ages to kind of help connect people and weave projects together and I think it does a good job of that. And I, I feel the same way. I mean, when I hear a song that's, you know, one of my favorite skateboarders is used in a video part, it always brings me back to where I was when I was watching that, the impact it had on me. And um, yeah, so I, I share the appreciation for music for sure. Yeah, it's rad. Well, and, and I'm going to get cheesy right now because it's Remember the Titans also, this song is in <laughs> Remember the Titans, which is a movie I do like. And I will admit, amazing. I do, <laughs> you know. Um, you know, and then I'm, I'm looking, I'm listening as well to a lot of your other parts. And, you know, and I said I was going to wait, but Credence Clearwater um, from your first video part, which is kind of crazy from that to, um, and then Jethro Tull, Locomotion Breath uh, in Cigar City and Missled Youth part um, with um, Bab O'Reilly. I mean, which are also like, so like all those songs are like so powerful songs, like not just listening to uh, but in movies and then video parts as well for sure i've always gone with these rock anthem parts um i mean i feel like they help motivate me to kind of be the best version of myself and then they also just look really cool to skating and um you know i don't, I don't know I, i've been a fan of all those bands you just mentioned for you know most of my life and to get the chance to put my skateboarding to those songs is you know kind of a dream come true yeah. Now, who did the rights for you on those songs? Some of them are approved and then some of them were bootlegged, you know, in early, early projects when, you know, we were kind of running things hot. We didn't, I didn't even, I mean, I knew people got the rights, but our videos were kind of low key and they turned into more cult classics than they were like, you know, mainstream distributed videos, you know, uh, before the internet and before DVDs, it wasn't as much of an issue as it is now, but um, in more recent times in the 2000s, we, we did get lots of rights and yeah, we had to pay, you know, anywhere from two to 10 grand, depending on, you know, the artist. And then some people have the most favored nations where they want to get paid as much as everyone else. And so you can only kind of use a few of those songs per, per part, but 
um, or per video project. But yeah, rice is a whole nother story. Yeah, no, I, I mean, it, it really is. Cause I've been listening to those songs. Now we're going to reset here. Uh, born in Dotham, Alabama, the peanut capital of the world. Um, it's pronounced Dothan. Oh, I'll, Dothan. I'll okay. It, see, like, and I don't know. I'll let it slide. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay. One That's more time. Right. I'm going to redo that. Okay. We're going to scratch that. Born in Dothan. Dothan. Dothan, Alabama. Dothan, yes. Alabama. Uh, 20 miles west of Georgia and 16 miles north of Florida. Yeah. It's really close to Florida. I spent a lot of time going to Florida whenever possible because it's, there's a little bit more going on in Florida than there was in Alabama. It's the peanut. And condom capital. Oh, God, I missed yeah, the condom The Trojan cap. factory's there. <laughs> so at all the pep rallies in high school, everyone threw condoms everywhere. I don't know. It's a, it's a thing. But uh, peanuts, yeah, peanuts is big business. There's a thing called the Peanut Festival, which is the fair. comes every year in October. And it's a really awesome thing. Just as a kid, I remember looking forward to it all year. You know, there's like grease pig chasing and... You know, there's farm animals and then there's like, you know, normal fair rides and stuff, but like the Motley Crue mirrors and I don't know, the whole nine, it was our fair and it was called the Peanut Festival and people came from all over. A lot of people know Dothan because it's the last town you go through when you're coming from anywhere in the central eastern United States going toward Panama City, Pensacola, Destin, all the spring break locations in the panhandle. Mm -hmm. You had to go through our small town and Dothan, pretty much all that's there is churches and restaurants for the most part. And so. peanuts and condoms. And peanuts and condoms, <laughs> Sorry, yeah. No, it is what no, it that's, is. No, that's, 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 that's really cool, though. Um, you know, and skateboarding in, um, in, in this in a city in Alabama in the 90s, or growing up, I should say, what was it like growing up? I mean, you mentioned the fair. Um, well, there wasn't a lot of skateboarding in Dothan. Um, fortunately, my family... My father's a nuclear engineer, and he uh, worked at a nuclear plant in Dothan. That's why we were there. And um, during junior high, he got transferred to Florida Power and Light to work for, you know, FPNL. And uh, we moved to Palm Beach Gardens. So in around, uh, yeah, fifth grade. So fifth, sixth, and half of seventh grade, I lived in Palm Beach Gardens. And that was the 80s when skateboarding was booming and blowing up and everyone was skating. So I got introduced to skating in Florida. And then when we moved back to Dothan in, you know, seventh, uh, the end of seventh grade, um, I kind of stuck with it and kind of battled it a little bit because there was only a few people that skated in town and it was pretty dismal compared to the, the booming scene of skateboarding in Florida. So um, I kind of went in and out of it a little bit. And then people slowly started skating um, when I got to high school and I got more into it. And then um, I discovered at the around that age, 15, 16, I was able to travel to other towns around me. And then I started connecting with everyone who skated in the Southeast. And then it became like a real community and I was able to, you know, progress and see what other people were doing. And, you know, it wasn't just like two kids at my school and we were like, you know, screwing around on curbs. It became like a real thing. So it, it kind of took me getting the freedom to travel to other cities in the Southeast in order to kind of really foster that, you know, strong passion for skateboarding and to, you know, come to the decision that I wanted to make a life in skateboarding. So that's kind of how it came about. Okay. Now, and let's talk about that skating. I mean, you mentioned curbs. Um, you know, what was there to skate? I'm assuming no ramps, not in. There was one ramp in Dothan. Was, okay. Yeah, but it was across town and I didn't have a way to get there. It was my, my buddy Kirk. Um, it was his house and he built a ramp and I'd get there like every couple of weeks, you know, um, sometimes on the weekends and I would, you know, go through a spree of getting a ride across town. And when I say across town, it's only like, 
seven miles or something. But it, it was pretty rural. Some parts of Dothan are pretty rural, and it's a pretty long skate. You know, you wouldn't want to embark on that seven-mile skate. At the time, I didn't think about it, and I would just skate whatever was around me. So, yeah, it was like parking curbs and, like, you know, small handrails and loading docks and, you know, the grocery store, the bench in front of the grocery store. I remember just skating for hours and hours and trying to learn all the tricks that were in the videos, you know, like stall tricks on benches. And we'd, you know, wax up a curb and skate a curb. And it didn't really take a lot. You know, as a kid, you're you're pretty, I don't know, you're pretty entertained, especially during these times before, you know, phones and, you know, complex video games you're entertained by just a parking lot i remember just spending a summer trying to learn how to nose manual and manual across a parking lot like that was fun every day i would try and get a you know one more parking spot closer to doing the whole parking lot and that's how i learned to nose manual or manual and i invested you know i don't know uh, time and parts of my life to different disciplines or different things of skating and I just enjoyed it I skated loading docks like every day for weeks and weeks and weeks and then I launched we'd get a launch we'd build a launch ramp and then we'd skate a launch ramp every day for you know weeks and then we'd build a little mini ramp and then we'd skate the mini ramp and it was just kind of like you know going from one thing to the next and um, I don't know we, we may do though I mean it's, that's what it was like you know and I, I really appreciated it and I, I, I loved building things and making stuff with my friends and you know you could make like you know, get a piece of PVC and put two two by fours on the bottom, get it from a construction site, put two two by fours on the bottom and you have like a little slider bar, you know? Um, so yeah, that, that's kind of what it was like. I mean, it's definitely, there was no skate parks in, in our area. The closest park was about two and a half hours away. And occasionally we would, you know, borrow a friend's car, or borrow a friend's mom's car and we'd all, you know, venture to the skate park, but it was pretty rare. Now, did you ever skate Glug, the Glug ramp? Uh, in Florida, and I'm I'm going back to Florida because you said you were there, but it might have been a little. You might have been a little young. No, I don't. Okay. I've never even heard of it. So, oh, okay. Uh, yeah, I never. Saw All right, that. that was a. Um, okay, that's a old Florida spot. Uh, I think in Daytona. Okay. It's like the Glug House. All right. I've um, never. I've been to Daytona and I went to Stone Edge. Okay. Um, for a contest one time, but I, yeah, I never heard of the Glug ramp. Okay, or Glug the Glug House, I should say. Or I think the there was house. like a ramp or a bowl there. Um, okay, so let's, um, Alabama kid, what, what, what happened that, you know, cause the nineties were tough on skateboarding. Um, the nineties, 91, I was sponsored, uh, snowboarding, um, professionally 92, 93, 94, 95. I rode with all pro skateboarders because skateboarding had been dead. Aaron Vincent, John Cardial, Chris and Monty Roach, who aren't pro skaters, um, Noah Selaznick, you know, that era, um, Colby Carter, um, Skateboarding was tough, but the, but this is this time that you decide to move from Alabama to San Francisco during that time. Yeah, I think when you're in the time and you have the you have the motivation and the determination, the worst times are the best times to do it. You know, and if like I've been in business a long time now, and I've you know you'll, we'll probably get to that, but um, you know if anyone were to ask me, I would tell them the time you want to start a company is when everyone tells you not to. And if you can make it in those times, then you can make it in any time. You know, so I started out skateboarding, you know, after skating, I got really into skateboarding after it died in the late eighties. And I was absolutely just my life, everything was skateboarding. And it was a really tough time in skating, but I love skateboarding so much. I didn't even know it was a tough time. I just thought it was awesome. It was like perfect. It was the perfect time. And 
the good thing about that was is that it was a tough time and then when it got better i was just like living this high for 10 to 15 years of even more awesome than i could ever have imagined because you know i didn't i didn't really expect a life you know my life to turn out the way it did i didn't expect to be a pro skateboarder i hoped i dreamed i wished you know and i worked as hard as i could but you know when you're in it you don't really i don't know i didn't really think it was all going to work out i didn't you know i couldn't have imagined any of the things that have happened happening you know so anyway that's what it's like i, I think starting doing a bold move and going out on a limb in a really tough time in any industry is the perfect time Okay, if you're just tuning in, I'm joined by Jamie Thomas. Uh, you can follow him on Instagram, Twitter, at uh, Jamie Thomas. Um, and those are the best portals to find the other avenues to see what he's doing. Now, I, I beg to differ a little bit because I think, I talked to Dave Berkthal, and he said the first, his first, rec, you know, the first time we met him, um, and he said this is something to the effect of, uh, but you could see this, like, focus, like, could not see anything but skateboarding um, and that he had something to the effect of that when I'm 30 or 40, I'm going to ollie off a building. You were so focused um, at what you were doing, nothing outside of the box, but yet you were able to, you know, kind of, you were able to succeed outside the box continually with businesses and, you know, everything you've kind of touched. Where did that come from? Where did this? Um, well, I think it. I think it does go back to what I was saying. <laughs> it goes back to what I was saying is, is that I just let motivation lead me. I just, whatever I was motivated to do and whatever I was inspired to do, I did. And I'm an all in type person. So, you know, when it, when it came to, you know, pursuing my dreams of becoming a pro skateboarder, that's what I focused on. And once I attained that goal, I didn't sit around and be like, oh, I made it. This is great. I just set a new goal and just kept setting new goals and kept pushing myself. And then it, you know, one thing led to the next and it was like, oh, I want to make a video part. And then I made a video part. And then I didn't like the feeling of watching the video part because I knew that I didn't have any foresight. I didn't have any vision for that video part. My only goal was to make a video part. And when I watched it, I was like, this feels meaningless because it doesn't have the emotion. It doesn't have the direction. It doesn't have the continuity that I wish it, wished it had. And so then my next goal was to make a good video part, one that I considered, you know, comparable to the parts that really inspired me and influenced me in my earlier in my career and life. And so then that was my new goal. And then when I made that, I was like, I wanted to take that out, you know, and then I started getting experience in marketing and in business. And then I was like, I want to start a company. So it's kind of like one thing led to the next. And I was constantly chasing this, I don't know, like maybe it was in goal, but really I found out when I got to wherever it is that I wanted to be, I didn't really care as much about the end goal. I just loved the journey and, and, and liked being in pursuit of something. And so I just kept working and working and working. And that I feel like was what fueled my career and what fueled my business and kind of is what you know fueled my life. Skateboarding became the vehicle for my life. I basically was able to, you know, meet people, learn etiquette, learn learn, you know, how to get along and how to correspond and how to communicate. And, I learned everything through skateboarding and, you know, I also learned business and, um, yeah, it's, again, it's been a blessing. I mean, I, I started business early though. I was an entrepreneur at a very, very young age. I started making zines and ordering blank boards. Like I ordered like, you know, planks, like the rectangle planks and I would cut them out, sand them, paint them, you know, finish them and then sell them to in my local community. I realized that 
quickly that I was spending way too much time on it and that you know, I was probably getting a dollar an hour for how much time I was putting into each board. So I only made a few of them, but it was like I had to try it out. I had to explore it. I wanted to have my own skateboard company at like 14 or 15, but I realized that I didn't have the means to be able to do it in an efficient level. And I just kind of, and it's not even like I, I didn't really analyze that. I just felt like at the end of it, like, oh, I'm tired. And then I got some money and I was like, oh, that's not enough money for how tired I am. <laughs> and this is exhausting and all I want to do is just skate. So I just ditched it. And then I went to a different, like, you know, business model and then started making sewing pants because we didn't have baggy pants at the time and we all wanted baggy pants. So And small wheels. Yeah, all <laughs> I mean, well, the small wheels. <laughs> sorry, that was you weren't making those I couldn't baggy make, pants. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't making small wheels, but it was basically like, you know, find a need, fill a need. And, you know, I, I don't know, I've just kind of, on from one thing to the next with that you have a Midas touch I, you know, know. I know I mean and I and I but I, yet I know that that Midas touch has not come without adversity and ups and downs as well I mean I think everything comes at a cost I mean if you want to make something great you want to make a great video part you got to put in the time you got to put in the work you have to you know you have to fight every single one of those fights to get the tricks on film and you have to get to the spot and you have to get the photographer, the videographer. There's a, there's a lot goes into everything. And I, I don't, I mean, the Midas touch, I don't, I don't even know what that is. I, I, well, I always yeah, get yeah. what you're saying, but I, I just don't even see that. I just see that basically if you put, you, you get out what you put in and the more you put in, the more you get out. And all those projects that, you know, you mentioned early, early on in the show, I just put in everything I had into every project and then it was going to be whatever it was, you know. And I heard that from employees, from people with your with Black Box as well, of just you being there until four in the morning. You know, I mean, you know, I mean, just working like. I know. It, I just always had the utmost respect hearing that. I have to tell you that because I, you were not only hands on, but you were there longer. You were there earlier. You were there. I mean, you were giving everything you had as well. I mean that you're you're talking about the perfect day and maybe a very generous employee painted me in that way. But all of those things come at a cost. It came at a cost to my relationships, to my families. You know, I think that everything comes at a cost and it's just like you have to weigh out if you're willing to sacrifice and, and, and put in, do what it takes in order to get to where you want to go. Oftentimes I'll do it and then get there and be like, oh, this is what it, this, this doesn't feel like what I hoped it felt like. And you know, I have to go and repair some relationships because I sacrificed a lot to get here. And, you know, I mean, yeah, there were times generally, though, when I was working super late or working super long hours is because I wasn't as efficient as I should have been because I got caught up in the small details and just overanalyzed and overthought stuff. And, you know, I've I've really almost hated finishing anything because I love doing it. I love being involved in the project. So like signing off on a shoe design to go away or the shoe to be ready for production, I'm like sad. I'm sad that it's the, the design process is over. I'm sad when the video's done and it's out. Like I don't want it to be out. I don't want it to be done. I want to just keep working on it forever. And that's, that's kind of a, I don't know, a little bit of a twisted scenario because I just find myself just wanting to be in the struggle and wanting to be fighting and you know thinking and solving puzzles all the time. And, you know, what it really is, it's really exhausting for the people around me because they don't, no one has that same methodology or some people do. And you generally those people are 
such strong personalities that, you know, I'm not always, I don't always mesh with them because we're like too similar. So I just, I don't know. It's, it's an obsessive nature. It, it's definitely um, gotten, I've gotten more in control of it as I've gotten older and matured and, and gotten wiser. And then, you know, also had to reevaluate my, um, you know, my priorities with my family being first now, not, you know, whatever last or, you know, now my, 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 my daughter will tell me straight up, like, you know, what do you mean you're not going to be in my game? Like, what's more important than me? And I'm like, you can't, what, what do you say to that? You know? No, that's kind of cool. That's kind of cool. All right. If you're just tuning in, we're talking, uh, we're talking about a lot of different things. I'm here with Jamie Thomas in studio. Um, okay. So Ella, we're going to, well, actually, I'm going to I'm going to go back. I, I'm going to throw I've got a couple quotes coming for you from some people, <laughs> some mutual friends of ours. Um, OK, so Adrian Peterson or Adrian Peterson, Adrian Lopez just texted me. Uh, I don't know what Jamie's on these days, but I need some. He's on fire right now. Long live the chief. You're too kind, Adrian. So and uh, and then I have another tidbit here from Mr. Don Brown. But we were, I was going to mention this when we get to the America era. Uh, but uh, Jamie is one of the most focused and smartest people I've ever met, and he, and this is seen in how he skates and lives life. Everything is very planned, articulate. When we gave him the opportunity to have an America pro shoe, unlike all other pros, he came in with drawings, with every detail down to a T. He also had the whole ad campaign in his head. It was pretty damn impressive. Jamie was also the first person to understand roadblocking in media where he would plan a whole magazine to be overtaken by what he wants to communicate. So whether it was him or one of his writers, the magazine would have an interview and every sponsor would be promoting that person. And of course, a cover shot too. He always has a plan and an opinion and a ton of fortitude to get the desired results. That's a long, long quote, Don. Yeah, and there's more. <laughs> He's stoked to call him a friend for so many years. I've seen the ups and downs and the downs have always been a learning experience to come back stronger than ever. Excited to see what amazing things Jamie is going to get up, it get up to in the future. Just tell him to see his clothes on. <laughs> <laughs> keep his clothes on. To keep his clothes on, and then he gives a ha ha ha. Yes, Don is a great guy, and he gave me an amazing opportunity at a really critical or pivotal time in my life. And it's ironic; I just thanked him for that opportunity on my Instagram yesterday. Um, but yeah, it was very surreal getting a pro shoe and. Those things are very sweet. Thank you, Don. I appreciate it. Um, but uh, yeah, we've we've always had a good relationship, a good rapport, and um, yeah, I don't know what to say about some of that stuff. I mean, I, I guess some of it I could acknowledge, you know, to, to be true and embrace it. And then some things, some parts of it, I feel like, you know, are they come with, you know, you got to take them with a grain of salt. They, like I said, everything comes at a price. So some of the things that I've done and attained, you know, they've they haven't really felt as sweet as they look on the outside. I think that's maybe the curse, you know, the curse of having a lot of drive and, you know. Focus. Or vision. or I don't know. I don't know what, yeah, focus. Well, I mean, well, and I think, I mean, I, I have to believe there's some parallel to your skating with how you attack, or not attack, but how you attack life as you would a handrail. Like how, what is the process? I mean, do you, you know, I mean, I know Robert Lopez came and stayed with us from Puerto Rico. He had watched, he had, I mean, he, his plan for the whole trip before he even got here was Hollywood High. So we, we, I mean, that was his, that was what he was going to do. Um, this is 2002, 2003. Yeah. Um, we went and kick flipped over the 16. Um, 
But that was, I mean, what you had done and what, what skaters had done before on that. What, what was the, the thought process going into that? Like, well, I think, you, you know, or your leap of faith. I mean, what? I think that, I think that, and I was going to, it's funny. I have this post kind of lined up to post on Instagram, but I feel like a lot of life is fear versus confidence. And when you envision or come up with the idea that you want to do something, whether it be start a brand or, you know, skate a rail or jump a gap. Sorry. Um, <laughs> Cole's making a few adjustments for yeah. us. Um, jump a gap or do a trick, whatever it is that you want to do. Um, I feel like it's fear versus confidence in the situation that you have to work your way backwards from where you want to be. And then you have to think about all the steps and then keep going until you find yourself where you are. And then you basically build up one step at a time till you get to that point. And you give yourself enough time and space in order to progress and, and you know continue to check back in on your progress and see where you want to go. I mean, it, you can look at a Rocky movie, for example. You got, you know, Rocky's going to fight Mr. T and he knows he's out of shape. He knows Mr. T's stronger. He knows all those things. And he goes back to the beginning and he trains one step at a time all the way to get ready for that fight. And it's funny I use Rocky because I feel like I saw Rocky at a very young age, like six or seven years old. And it was the first thing, the first time I ever felt like motivation. No, that's not true. Evil, Evil Knievel was before Rocky. But Rocky <laughs> was the first time I walked out of a movie theater and was like, I felt motivation and I felt inspired. And it's funny that it, it like struck such a deep nerve with me that I was like, I'm going to make something of my life. And it's funny that, you know, you can kind of come to that at like that young, but I just remembered being like inspired outside of myself, like way bigger than how old I was or way bigger than how much retention I had. But I just remembered it being resonating with me very, very well, that Rocky story. That was Rocky too. And then when I saw, I watched all the Rocky movies over the years, I feel like my life, I'm living like a parallel to Rocky's movies, you know, where he's getting beat down and he's coming back. He's getting beat down and he's coming back. And they're just bigger and bigger challenges in life. And I mean, maybe that's corny or maybe that's too like Hollywood, but I feel like that gives me some perspective of why I do what I do and then how I get to where you go. You know, like the Russian was unbeatable. You know, he killed Apollo Creed and then you know, and that's the sp that's the spot, that's the business, that's the brand, that's the thing. And then you just work your way backwards to how hard do you have to work to prepare to do whatever it is. And I never really trained or practiced on purpose. I enjoyed the process, but I just would go like, okay, I look at this rail and it's amazing, but it's really big right now. But I'm not intimidated by how big it is because I'm not trying to do it today. I'm going to do it someday. And then I'm like, it's a 17 or it's a 20, you know? And then I'm like, okay, thinking about that, looking at that, I'm not ready for it today. I go back and I'm like, I want to do this one trick, but I don't even know how to do that trick yet. So I'm like, okay, I got to find a five stair rail. And I go find the five stair rail and I skate that. And then when I get the trick and it feels really comfortable, I go to the seven stair rail and then I go to the 10 stair rail. And this can be, sometimes these processes are only a few days or a week back in that critical time period in the 90s. And then sometimes it would be like a few months where I'd have to continue to check in on my progress and be like, how close am I? When am I ready? Am I ready? No, I'm not ready. How close am I to being ready? And I don't know. I think that that's where the vision comes in. You visualize what it is that you want to do. 
and then you work your way backwards. You find out how far away you are, and then you just work in baby steps toward that. Sometimes those baby steps go really fast, and sometimes they go slow. And it just depends on how big your undertaking is or how big the goal is, you know, and how long it's going to take. So I don't know. Maybe that's long-winded, but that's how I approach things, and that's how I approach life. It's the same way. It's basically like I, you know, I wanted to start a podcast, and I just was like, you know, all right, what do you got to do to start a podcast? <laughs> and then you just take it one step at a time and you just start chipping away at it. And before you know it, you're down a road and you're pretty close. Well, no, it's funny you say that because I, I had the same vision with kind of transferring into the NFL or trying to cover the NFL. And I remember shooting photos of one of the players at his home. And and I said, um, yeah, I want to be on Monday Night Football with Al Michaels and um, – and John Gruden, or uh, not John Gruden, um, and Madden. And and I want to take the crayon from Madden and sh and break down a play for him and say, no, 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 no like this over here. Um, and Sean Phillips actually was the player, outside linebacker for the Chargers. Um, he was like, yeah, you got it. You can do it. And it was, I mean, and everyone's just like, yeah, right. So how was I going to get to the NFL? Like, I mean, with skateboarding in our world, but I mean, it was another world as well. Um I mean, but, but think about it, Dothan, Alabama to San Francisco or San Diego. No, I mean, it's you. To the cover of a magazine. It's the same thing. And everyone well, has those. much more. I mean, I'm not comparing. No, no, I'm just saying it, it. I I understand. I, I get what you're you know, saying. And snowboarding, same thing. What am I going to, you know, like of just having that passion. But let's, um, I want to step side, not sideways. We're just going to step, keep stepping, um, I guess. We're just going to keep walking. Alabama. To San Francisco was a huge, huge move. Um, you were 17, 17 years old. Yeah, 17. What was the departure like from your parents? What was... It was quick. I basically quit school, uh, junior in high school, um, got in a little bit of trouble, and school wasn't really working out. I found out I was going to have to repeat 11th grade. I was going to have to wait another year to go to California, and I just decided that I was gonna stop going to school and start working, saving up for the trip. And um, you know, my father had a pretty basic but firm rule that you either have to go to school or you have to work to live in his house. You know, Maybe he meant after 16 or when you were able to work. And um, so I quit school, so I got a job. I started working, saving up for a car, I worked at Burger King, double shifts, split shifts, they call it. Um, and uh, I did that as much as I could to save up for a car and then bought a car and then moved to Atlanta. Um, because Atlanta, there was a lot more skating going on for the summer, 92, and um, worked telemarketing or doing phone interviews and surveys. And uh, then uh, saved up some money and departed for California. Um, but for me, it sounds like a big jump, but it really was like the only option because I knew that I wasn't going to college. I knew that there was nothing for me in the South. Um, there was no career opportunities that interest me. There was nothing there at all that interests me. I mean, I had some good friends and um, they were cool, but I knew that, you know, I would remain friends with them forever and I have. Um, but other than that, I knew that I had to go to California to, to you know, pursue my dreams. So it, I never really, I mean, I, I spent like a summer thinking about it, but it wasn't like, can I do it? It was like, I have to do it. There's no other life in any direction that I can see besides this one path. And so, I don't know, when, you, when it's that clear, like what, you don't have, you just gotta do it. 
just got to go for it. Yeah. But now the response when you got there was not exactly <sighs> what you had sort of thought was going to happen. For sure. And that was the first time I think that I, it really dawned on me that my dream wasn't necessarily everyone else's dream for me, you know, and I had to, you know, take some steps back and analyze the situation and figure out why it wasn't working and then reassess, reapproach, and then start moving in a different direction. That was like the first real adversity I had experienced in my life. And, and it was a, you know, make or break moment. Like there were, I remember getting really sick around that time period. I had um, staph infection and strep throat simultaneously. And, you know, when you're sick or when you have a fever or when you're down, the, everything seems like amplified. amplified. And it seems like it's, an, you know, it seemed impossible that it was ever going to work in California. And I remember that that was the only like two to three day period where I considered going home. And then I was like, well, I got to kick this fever and I got to get better before I can go home anyway. So I just, you know, went to the free clinic, got a shot of penicillin and started feeling better. And as soon as I started feeling better, I became optimistic again. And then my optimism was restored. And by the time I was well and I, you know, gotten the strep throat down and the staph infection sorted out, I was like, what am I thinking? There's no way I'm going home. I played the tape through and was like, what are you gonna do when you get home? You're gonna work a dead end job. You you don't have even a high school education, much less a college education. There's nothing there for you. And then I played the tape through and then was like, all right, that's not an option. And then I just went back to my goal and my path and kept, kept trudging forward. But I mean, adversity, like, you know, most people will tell you, you grow the most when you, when you, you know, experience the most pain and I feel that that was my first dose of that was, you know, early 90s showing up in California thinking I was going to be cool and being so, so far from cool. Well, and, uh, you know, and this was, you know, I mean, you were, you were living out of your car or at EM or at, at Embarcadero. I mean, and I mean, it was not glamorous by any means, you know, and I, I, the only reason why I share this is because to give hope as well to others that maybe don't know this. And I, I think a lot of people know this about you, but you know, I mean, your path has been, you're, you're steady. You keep going, you know, well, you are like Rocky. I mean, you, what, what are your options not to stop? I mean, I just feel like certain people feel that what it is they want to do and what it is they want to carry out is stronger than any opposition. It's stronger than any naysayers. It's stronger than anything that's coming at them. And you just have to work through each of those, you know, those hurdles one at a time. And if you break them down one at a time, they're all, you know, you can overcome them all. So you just have to take things in small bites. And that's what I did for, you know, when I was on the streets, it was just like one day at a time, you know, it was like one meal at a time. It was just, you know, just trying to get through that time period to get to better days, you know, and then having the optimism to think that it's going to get better. That I think that is the gift. If I were to like look at something that I was born with, that maybe not everyone else has. It's with a good night's sleep, I am restored to 100% full optimism. And that I think has kept me coming back for more like time and time again. And the funny thing is, is my mother was that way. And I feel like I'm so thankful that I was born with that gift because talent, like all the other stuff, like it, it it's 
great. And it's the more you have, the more successful you can be. But to have that like restored optimism every day in either relationships or projects or whatever, it, you know, you, you don't get beaten down and you don't give up because you wake up the next day and it's like, oh, yeah, this is what I want to do. I'm going to do it. So I don't, I don't know. I think that I'm very thankful for that because that's the thing I realized that not everyone has. And no, because the general generally people think the cap is half empty. I mean, and it's not it's not a to put down, but I mean, or not everybody, but I I do like I have to I have to mentally shift my thought process to like the the cup half full. You know, it's always more. Aaron always teases me. He's like, God, it's never good enough. You know, like you're, you're, you're listed as one of the top photographers, but it's not good enough because you haven't had a cover yet because you're not number one. And it's like this drive I have, like doesn't allow me to it ever to be good enough, but you for some reason have that drive, but you have also this ingredient that allows you to have a fresh start and the hope. Yeah. I think that gratitude really helps. And I'm not trying to say that you're, you don't have it or anyone else doesn't have it, but I think that gratitude and being very thankful for where I am right now and to feel like that, you know, I'm, I'm, I feel very blessed. And this life that when I look back on it, if I like were to imagine it at 16 years of, you know, old, I have been in overtime and I have been on with the, you know, cherry on top for a solid 20 years. Like I've been professional, I've been a professional skateboarder for 25 years. It's amazing. And I, I just don't, I never saw that, you know, and you're right. Like I did say I was going to ollie off a building when I was 30 or 40. And the main reason I think that I said that was, is that, I couldn't imagine being old and not being able to skateboard. And so that was my version of my, my strange, you know, 19 year old, 20 year old version of, I don't want to see this end. And instead of it, like, you know, ending not on my terms, I'm going to try and do it on my terms. And, but that's kind of insane too. And obviously I'm going to get married and I'm going to have kids and there's going to be much greater things to live for than skateboarding. And there are. You know, um, skateboarding just for me is still pretty high on the list. Yeah. Okay. If you're just tuning in, I'm joined by Jamie Thomas. If you are just tuning in, as I mentioned, you can follow him on Instagram or Twitter at Jamie Thomas. Um, and this is the Desiree show on dash radio as well. Now, San Francisco to San Diego, another trip. Okay. So experience happens. You get your first pro model 93, correct? Mm -hmm. You come invisible. You're joined by Laban and John Reeves on invincible. You get your first cover on Transworld. I mean, it, what is it about San Diego? I mean, San Diego seemed to have a little magic for you as well when you arrived. Well, or no, the timing, or I mean, I no, don't I mean, <laughs> San Diego is a little bit more open to outsiders. Like Northern California, it, there's a click there. There always has been. There always will be. Um, and that's part of you know what makes it so cool. But it's also it's hard to like, it, you know, I don't, it's a weird word, but it's hard to like penetrate that kind of click or that, that, I don't know, that group. And I feel like, you know, with the, you know, help of a few people, you know, Bryce Knights, Jim Thibault, those guys really helped me out a ton in Northern California. And maybe they were the only two of Gabe Morford. There was just a handful of people that really saw something in what I was doing and were willing to give me the time of day. Um, there were some of the guys at EMB that came around and, you know, were pretty nice to me over the time, James Kelch, Jake Jones. Um, but for the most part, I found SF to be really tough and to not be very warm and inviting. So when I got sponsored by Invisible in um, 90, end of 93 or 94, um, or early 94, I, um, 
I just felt like San Diego was closer to the culture that I grew up in. It was a little bit more suburban, you know, and things moved at a slower pace. Like SF, you had to wake up at six or seven in the morning to move your car like every day, unless you lived in like, or you paid 200 bucks a month for a parking spot, which was insane at that time to have an extra $200. Anyway, I, I just, you know, I embraced San Diego, came to visit one time and I was like, whoa, this is really cool. Things are really mellow, laid back. Um, things were more affordable, you know, um, and I just, I remember going to Pacific Beach and being like, whoa, this is so cool. I want to move to the beach. And so I just embraced it. And after I embraced it, um, you know, and got to know people, I felt like there was opportunity there. And it wasn't like I had to be so cool for that opportunity. It was, it was kind of like the strengths that I had, which was my work ethic and my willingness to put in the time and you know, try my hardest, like those things were valued in San Diego. And in San Francisco, it didn't matter how hard I worked or how willing I was. It was like, how cool are you? You know, and can you fit in with this click? And if you can't, you're out. And so San Diego didn't have that same, that same uh, obstacle. So I really embraced it. And, and there were some people that really helped me out, you know, uh, Grant, Swift, um, Dave Berkthold, uh, quite a few people that really kind of helped me get my, my start in San Diego. And one thing led to the next, you know, I, I did the best I could and I gave those guys my best every time we went skating and I got photos in the magazine at first and then I walked into Transworld one day and they handed me a magazine and I was on the cover and it was mind blowing. And, you know, it made me want to like just cry in appreciation that someone cared enough about me, you know, to or give me a chance like that, you know, that was huge for me. And then really that was like fuel to the fire when I, when that happened and that was like, that was like I had, I had had arrived and, you know, I talk about this on um, this other podcast called the bunt. Um, I had arrived at skateboarding when they handed me the magazine and I was on the cover, like to be from Dothan, Alabama and be on the cover of a magazine. It was, you know, it was very, very surreal, but it told me that anything is possible. You can take this as far as you want. And it was like, it was just, this amazing affirmation and acknowledgement that I'd probably been searching for my whole life. Rad. Now, did you, I have to ask, did you go to 7-Eleven to make sure that that wasn't just the only copy? Because <laughs> when I got my first photo in Transworld, I ran to 7-Eleven to make sure they didn't just give me one copy that had a photo of mine in it. <laughs> I, I didn't do that, but I will tell you if there were ever, if I was ever anywhere, there were skateboard mags and I had a photo in the magazine, I would go and look at it and it would have this real, this, this like, I don't know, like, like you're saying, there's, there's this element of that it's real to the whole world, not just your small world. Mm -hmm. And, um, but I don't think that I was thinking that they were handing me the only copy. Yeah, but, no, I mean, I, you know, but I, I get it. You know, just that uh, sort of raw moment. Um, okay, uh, invisible to toy machine uh, and, and so much more, but I, I want to share a little bit from Ed. Um, Jamie Thomas truly embodies best of skateboarding. He's an American original who has blazed a trail for himself with extreme highs and lows through hard work, tenacity, talent, and vision. My life has been improved from the pres from his presence in it. Wow, that was big. Where, how did you get these quotes? I called people. <laughs> I've, I've got a crazy phone list. <laughs> I know I bet, you do I too. But, uh, no, I mean, I, I, I know that... I, I love Ed. And anything he's saying that I helped him with, he helped me with way more. He's an awesome dude. I love, I love him. And you know, I w it was an absolute pleasure to ride for Toy Machine during the time I did. It was only two and a half years. It was such a huge part of my life and career, though. 
because I was developing and it was such a golden time for me growing and skateboarding and growing in my life. And the opportunities that he and Todd gave me were, I mean, they were, they were huge. They were, it was the biggest, you know, like you're talking about the biggest breaks of my life and, and writing for Toy Machine and Ed giving me the keys to make videos and, and help build teams. And it was such a huge confidence builder that he, you know, felt that I could do that. And then, you know, when I did it and it was successful, it just, you know, further kind of encouraged me to keep dreaming. Welcome to hell. Yeah, that was, was a really awesome project that I was, you know, thankful to be a part of. And I think people know, but I will, uh, I mean, director, filmer, you had a part and you edited this video as well. Yeah, that was like my first, I mean, well, we did heavy metal right before that, but heavy metal was like a warm up. We were trying to get it out. We were trying to build a team. And um, it was like the, you know, the warm up project to like, hey, we're gonna, you know, I wanna, I wanna make a video. And we made heavy metal and it was fun, but it wasn't that serious. And then it was like, oh, this, this is what's possible. Like now we can, you know, I can look at that and go, okay, that's the, that's the like starting point. Like, where do we want to go with this? And, you know, then we put a little more into building a better team and visualizing what could be and how the music could come together and stuff. And yeah, I was just, I don't know, I guess exploring and it was a you know very magical time just doing things for the first time like every day was something new for the first time and that's you know that's obviously that can't that's not that can't last you know um, it, it can for some people I've seen documentaries on some people's lives and they just keep doing that over and over and over again but those are like you know one in a million and they're but very inspirational nonetheless yeah well and I think of is this older photo of you and Ed and Chad and Sattva and um, I mean, it just makes me smile when I see that photo because the 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 youth, the the how young you guys are, yeah, um, is just is it heartwarming, you know. That sounds corny, but I mean, no, it's, it's, I, it's, I, I uh, know what you mean. I mean, we're all exploring, you know. And Chad and I have gone in different directions and come together, and you know. And unfortunately, I don't see Sapa very much, but it's and it's always a reunion whenever I see Ed. It's like there wasn't a day that you know, has passed. Every time we see each other, we pick up the exact place we left off. And, you know, that's, that's what's great about having, you know, real friends. Yeah, skateboarding is pretty rad that way. Uh, now I'm gonna, uh, Grant, actually, I, I reached out to Grant as well. I didn't get, t Swift didn't get back to me. <laughs> <laughs> He's too busy yeah. shooting pool photos and skating pools. <laughs> Well, Grant's in the Death Valley, so, uh, but Grant got back to me, and, you know, I asked him if he had a quote on you, um, shooting Leap of Faith, you know, this monumental, very, very parallel to what happened in your life as well at this point, um, but he said the only time I thought we might need a paramedic, you know, is when he went out to shoot. I mean, this was... Um, you know, crazy for Grant to say that, I think, but just the, the enormity of what you did, um, not just on your board, but then also a leap starting zero, 100%, like giving everything up to go, just, just do zero. Yeah, From and that was originally the idea behind that Leap of Faith ad was, just, well, first the Leap of Faith was supposed to be the cover of Transworld, but then I didn't make it. So we were like, what do we do with it? And then we're like, oh, let's make a zero ad. Because at that point, zero, I had really been trying to drive home this point that we were like this group of losers and that we weren't very good. 
and you know and that's it's a little bit like i don't know it's a little bit embellishing the talent um that i had or the, or the embellishing the lack of talent that we had but i just felt like if you set the standard really really low then no one would be disappointed and so that's what i tried to do with zero out of the gates um and when I tried the leap of faith and I didn't make it. I was like, oh, it's perfect for a zero ad because I want zero to be this thing that people can relate to. And it's not like glitzy and it's not like polished. It's just raw. It's just raw skateboarding and it's no nonsense skateboarding. And in this situation, I tried something that was beyond my scope or beyond what I could do and I didn't make it. And it's the perfect, you know, kind of platform to launch the fact that I'm quitting Toy Machine at the peak of Toy Machine and at the peak of my career to go start, start this brand. And the brand had already been started. With t-shirts, right? Yeah, but there wasn't enough, true. there wasn't enough like positivity to suggest that it was, the timing was right for me to quit Toy Machine, but it was a leap of faith, you know? And and then the, the gap was also the leap of faith. Um, Adrian Lopez came up with that and you know, we were just like sitting around trying to come up with some type of tagline for the ad. And um, he came up with it and it was absolutely perfect because it was, you know, a leap of faith to quit toy. And and then this gap ended up becoming called the leap of faith. And I had no idea that people would still be talking about me not making that Ollie, you know, 22 years later, you know, that was 1997. So um, funny enough, I got married, uh, you know, I, uh, two weeks after that. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's really <laughs> random. I'm just going to go jump off the leap of no, faith and get married. And Joanne was like, no, honey, you have to have all your teeth for this. <laughs> I don't even think she knew what we were doing that day. I don't even think I even told her what I was doing. I think we just went out skating. And I mean, maybe I talked about it, but at the time I was jumping off stuff pretty regularly. And, you know, I, I knew it was about four to six feet taller than anything that I jumped off of. But I knew the consequence wouldn't be that much greater with the four to six feet. It wasn't like I was gonna like land on my head, you know? And, you know, that's again, the fear versus confidence. My confidence was up. I'd been jumping off vert ramps on a regular basis. And I was like, you know, vert ramps 12-ish feet high with a, you know, being built off the ground a little bit. So, you know, this is, I don't know, 17, 15 at the, where you start and 17, maybe 18. Anyway, I don't know. I just knew that I could land on my board. I didn't know if I could ride away, but you gotta explore those things. Well, and let's talk about your equipment right now, because, you know, 97, the boards were small. Still. Mine wasn't. How, well, what's not small? Was so, seven and a half? No, it no, was no, no, no. So, and I'll, yeah, that, I mean, I'll try and refresh you a little, I'll try and refresh you a little bit. Your wheels as well. I'll try and refresh you a little bit. The boards in the early 90s were like nine inches. And then around this time, they started shrinking, but they hadn't shrank below eight yet. So... Oh, no, I had a board, well, in 95, 94, 95. I rode eight and a quarter from... You, okay. From probably eight and a quarter to eight and three eighths from probably 90... I don't know, five to 99. Okay. And before that, though, there was a time period when I rode for Invisible that I was riding eights. And I had a couple of boards that were smaller, but I never rode them. I always rode a little, slightly bigger board. So okay. I never really went down that far. So my Will board was... was my board. Wheelbase was 14, 14 and a quarter. quarter. Okay. So that, that board that I allied Leap of Faith on is eight and a quarter, 14 and a quarter wheelbase. Decent size board. I mean, it's a little small for these days, but not even really that small now. 
Um, but people always commented that my boards are a little bigger than everyone else's. I rode 56 millimeter wheels, so oh, okay. I, I had a kind of a bigger setup. But you did? And your you thunder trucks? I, at that point, I think are I was we? riding indies oh, during, okay. during that. Um, I'm not. I'm not exactly sure, but okay. I think I was riding indies. But um, I don't have the complete. I only kept the deck. Okay. So yeah. that's cool. You kept the deck. Yeah, I, I wasn't even. It's funny. I, it's the only toy machine ridden board that I kept um, was that one. But yeah, I never really thought of, I kept a lot of stuff, but I didn't start really keeping stuff until 2000. Um, once I had a building and stuff was a place to put it, I started keeping everything. And then I kept an obscene amount of stuff since then. So now I'm trying to get rid of it. It's hard. It's hard. Now uh, you, you're, you've had multiple signature, uh, obviously boards, shoes, uh, uh, and other products as well. But I don't know if you have one of these. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> this is a ukulele. Oh, it's a guitar, a mini guitar with, uh, looks like fishing string as the strings. It's, well, no, it's a, yeah, you're, you're, it's a signature guitar for you. Nice. Yeah. I've never had, I've never had one of I, these. I wasn't sure, but I didn't think so. <laughs> I like how it has guitar and, um, looks like Spanish maybe as well. Yeah. Uh, it might. No French. It looks maybe. Tu parles français aussi? Yeah. Okay. All right. So I just uh, handed Thank you for Jamie. the signature guitar. <laughs> I know you've always inches, wanted one. <laughs> 12, 12 inches long. And we're going to have a, a solo later. If you guys want to stay tuned, we're going to have a little <laughs> special iTunes or a <laughs> episode edition. Um, oh, okay. So we're going to, uh, we're okay. Zero. Uh, there is something else I want to read. Um, well, you, first of all, your shoes, I have to say your circus shoe and your fallen signature shoes are shoes that I wore to skate in. Those are the only shoes I really awesome. like to Thanks. skate in. And I still have them. And my husband is like, you have to throw them away because you don't, you can't even feel your board anymore with those wheels. I'm like, no, but they fit right. And I can't get any anyways. Um, so I, I do love what you have done. I saw those shoes a year or two ago and I think, yeah, it's ready. It's time for you to it's, get And those. I got some from Vans, but you know, and they don't have the pro models in five and a half boys. Or five and boys, and that's yeah. what I am. Um, okay, so, I, okay, zero. You did a post on Adam Arunsky, one of your writers, one of your employees, and you, know, and you said he is one of my favorite skaters and the epitome of zero. He works hard, doesn't, re doesn't rely on his talent alone, and has a heart, drive, and passion for skateboarding. What you said there and what I read was what I think of you. Well, and I mean, what zero is all about. I didn't really think about that and I wasn't trying to be too selfish about it. No, it wasn't selfish. No, no, I, I know. You know. I guess what I'm getting at is, is that, you know, I've been running zero for 22 years and it is a direct reflection of my vision of skateboarding. You know, I've, I, I run it. I've been making, I've been making all the ads. I've been making all the videos. I've been making all the stuff. I mean, you know, creatively directing the graphics, even if I didn't hand draw them or I didn't, Great. I was always working with an artist on this vision that I had. And so the brand is very close to me. And I mean, I guess what I'm saying is, is that Adam, he embraces a lot of the qualities that I set out to make a brand, you know, or why or how I set to make the brand. He embraces those qualities or he's he has them very naturally. And he's just a really great guy. And the fact that he works a nine to five job and is still filming a full video part for the next zero video is it's awesome. And to see him at the skate park every single day. And if someone's not there, he's got a little tripod for his phone and he sets it up and he films himself and 
he puts it on Instagram and he has a very small following, but he's very dedicated to what he does. And I, I really love that about him. And, you know, not to mention he's a great skateboarder. He's got an amazing style and his part will be awesome. And everyone will be like, what is going on here that this, the sales guy at zero has a part in the video and it looks like this. All, all those things are awesome. And I feel like that dedication that he has to what it is that he wants to do, whether it be a video part, film, skate at lunch, whatever it is, that burning drive, that's what I feel like, you know, I I think Zero has been over the years, and I don't know, I just really appreciate him, and I appreciate, you know, what he brings, and I feel like that's why, that's why I made that post. About it. No, it was beautiful, I was reading it, and I'm like, wow, this is really mm -hmm. resonates everything what Jamie is about as well, like, it was just rad that you see this in this employee, yeah. Um, you know, and now we are running out of time. So, but what we are going to do is we will keep going. Um, and you guys are privy to catch this last part on iTunes for the Desiree show. Um, Jamie Thomas in studio. He's, I do want to say before we, uh, sign out right now is that he's got a new podcast coming out. There is 12 episodes Four will drop the first week and then one a week for eight weeks. Um, and where is the best way for people to follow that on your Instagram? Yeah, I would go to Instagram at thrill of it all. I'm still putting all the pieces together to get on SoundCloud, iTunes, and all of the podcast platforms. Um, it'll also be available on YouTube. So you can type in thrill of it all on YouTube. You might get a bunch of, um, Sam Smith videos or something. I think that was the name, <laughs> that was the name of his last album, but it was the name of the zero video in 1997. And so, um, that's what the podcast is all about. It's basically the inspiration and, uh, stories behind, people that I admire and respect and trying to figure out what makes them tick and uh, what's made them, you know, kind of do all the great things that they've done. And it's just kind of just personal interest pieces. Um, it's, you know, it's me interviewing people that I selfishly want to hear how they got to where they are, you know, and then I'm sharing those stories with everyone else. And, you know, it's going to be a multimedia uh, uh, podcast in the sense that it will be available on all the audio, you know, podcast platforms, but it'll also be a YouTube video with hopefully some, some context put to all the stories we're talking about. Hopefully you'll get some visuals to go with that. Um, that's me biting off a little more than I can shoot. I should have just made it audio, but anyway, okay, that's sorry. it. <laughs> no, that's cool. All right, you guys, thanks for so much for tuning in. This is the Desiree show on dash radio. Huge thanks to Jamie Thomas. And again, to Cole uh, for running the boards and tune into the iTunes to hear a little bit more about Jamie and I'm out. This is Desiree Astorga, and I am grateful to have partnered with a brand I truly believe in, a product I use. This amazing stimulator works with your body to alleviate pains due to overexertion, soreness, even helps strengthen your muscles. Head over to BMLS.com and order yours today. Okay, welcome back. This is the Desiree Show on Dash Radio, and we are going to go extra time. I've got Jamie Thomas in studio and some information, uh, or a little bit more uh, for you all. We've got a little bit of time to go with that. Um, we're talking about zero, uh, and Jamie's getting ready to play a serenade here, I think, with his guitar. I did mention he was going to be, <laughs> we need some live video of this. <laughs> okay, we're going to go live. Uh, we're going to be showing this on stories. This oh, well, now that's, Desiree. you know, that's your, hey, let's see that. You'll see your guitar. There you go. His first signature guitar. I know he's, oh, it's not been on his list of wish list or top 100, but 
Um, it's technically a bass, right? Or I don't know what it's supposed to be. <laughs> it's a guitar, I think, is what the book says. All right. Um, now, Zero. How did Zero, the name, come about? Well, I wrote for a clothing company in the mid-90s called Zero Sophisto. It was run by Andy Howell. And Andy had dropped the, the company in like the early 90s was a politically based company where he, you know, he had these views on politics and different things, racism and different human, I don't know, kind of human interest elements that he was um, graphically illustrating through his artwork and through the brand. And that was when it was called Zero Sophisto. And then and when we got into the mid 90s, I think he felt like that direction was kind of too close for where he wanted to go. So he dropped off zero and he just went with Sophisto and he kind of made it more of a, you know, tried to go a little more of a fashion fashion direction rather than political direction. And I was writing for Sophisto and I felt that it was getting fresher and fresher as he did it. It was turning more into like a Polo Nautica inspired brand rather than you know, kind of what I originally wanted to be and part of this art project with Andy Howell that I wore his t-shirts. And so um, I kind of felt like I wasn't really fitting in to the, to the brand. And I approached him about potentially starting a t-shirt line and calling it zero. And maybe that I could continue to work with him and work with, you know, what he was doing, but we would call this t-shirt line zero. And then he would do Sophisto and kind of more of the fashion kind of current um, aesthetic of what was happening in the industry. And then zero could take this different direction. And I wanted to go back into the like late 80s, like the stuff that inspired me to skate and all the brands that I thought were cool in the late 80s. So I pitched it to him and he just felt a little overwhelmed at the time that he couldn't take on another project no matter how small and he couldn't wrap his head around it. So I was like, okay, um, I thought about it for a little bit and then I kind of got really spun up on the idea and I really thought it was a cool idea, a really great time in skateboarding to have something different and unique that was a little bit more rock and roll, a little more like late 80s vibe when everything was very clean and simple and minimalist and everyone wore like tan pants and a white t-shirt and you know the girl the girl movement was like really happening which was awesome because girl skateboards is a great company and all amazing team riders but a lot of guys looked very similar and a lot of guys looked alike and i felt different so at any rate i asked andy if he minded if i went and did use that name elsewhere he said not at all so i you know, went to Tamiro and went to Todd Swank and was like, hey, I have this idea. I want to do this like punk rock, uh, you know, T-shirt brand and kind of see where it goes. And he's like, yeah, let's do it. Let's make some T-shirts. So we made some T-shirts. American Zero was one of the first ones. Um, the Army was actually the absolute first, mm -hmm. which is just the Z-E-R-O with a zip up, you know, kind of like the U.S. Army uh, outfit or gym, gym workout gear. Um, so anyway, I made that. Um, the Zero Army, American Zero, and then the Skull. And then we just started kind of like going in this like late 80s kind of punk rock, rock and roll vibe. And it seemed like there was a lot of people that liked it and identified with it that weren't really, you know, able to connect with anything. And um, it was right around the same time Antihero came out. Antihero came out the year before, I think 95. And um, they probably felt the same way. Zero was a little bit different, a little bit more simple and bold and mm -hmm. very easy to identify what, what with what it was so um we made a video and in, the video was very dumbed down skateboarding it was like just us riding off stuff kind of you know we skated a little bit of rails but for the most part it was really simple and people were able to relate to it um and you know kind of identify with it and skateboarding had started to get really technical around that time so i think people enjoyed the you know 
the simplicity of it. And the video Thrill of It All came out in 97 and became, you know, pretty, pretty popular and was kind of a cult classic because we were definitely the underdogs in the industry. And I didn't really have any expectations for it. You know, I just wanted to do, you know, I just, I just had this vision and I wanted to carry it out. That was just kind of as far as I'd gotten. I didn't expect it to be, you know, so successful. And none of us did. You know, the whole, the whole first team, we were all kind of shocked that people, you know, really took to it the way they did. But people did respond very positively and it encouraged us to like go, oh, wow, this is, we have an amazing opportunity here. Let's like make something great. And then we set off on Misled Youth and, um, you know, spent a year and a half making misled youth and then once that was over we went through a few team changes and then went on to setting out another two and a half years for dying to live and then we basically at that point where we were you know those videos became our milestones of the brand and they became like you know the i don't know the i guess the the history of it is like who was involved in the videos and what music did they skate to and what were their parts like and how did the video compare to the last one or you know how did it hold up in the in the you know uh, judgment of the zero videos so that was kind of what we did and that's you know i, I kind of tried to cover some ground there but we had some amazing guys come through the brand and ride for the brand and i got to work with them very closely you know still filming and editing and directing and all that during this time i mean there's not much directing it's basically like Hey guys, get in my car. Let's go let's to the spot. <laughs> yeah, and then the, what do you got? <laughs> and then directing at the spot was just trying to find the best place to film, you know. And then and to utilize different angles to utilize if needed for other from montage or I totally, mean, for, you know, different parts. Yeah. Yeah, and then I I always tried to film in complementary angles. So I would try and if I knew a trick was really good, I would try and film two angles that would go together really well. And I'd, I'd made a few videos by this time, so you know I kind of had an understanding for how those things looked and worked and you know you do a fisheye and then a long lens and then you know when the music was going fast the fisheye would be the last clip of the fast music and then as it transitioned into slow music you'd have the long lens of the same trick that would kind of transition your eyes and it made more sense for the long lens to be put to slow music anyway just those tricks I mean Mike Ternansky you know kind of taught me how to do those things by just me studying his videos that he made like planet earth video life video plan b videos um so yeah that's that's the that's the story zero was basically founded on videos the graphics sucked for the first like five years but people liked it because they were super simple and i didn't know any better i didn't i didn't have any experience in graphic design um and, but it's and it still is i mean they you know it's the same zero skateboards you have a vision like everybody has a vision when you say that I think. I think so. I mean, I've tried you to know, stay pretty consistent. You with have. It. You we've, really have. We've, we've experimented over the years, and I'm trying to experiment even more now because I don't want the brand to become stale, but I keep us, you know, a, a certain portion of the products in line that, you know, have been there since the beginning. So people have the familiarity with the past. Um, but I definitely think, you know, you have to keep reinventing yourself if you want to stay relevant. So um, I try and, you know, walk that fine line of spending time investing in, you know, reinventing and then also staying true to our, you know, original brand DNA. Well, and you mentioned, you know, and I, uh, I know that you've mentioned that Zero also started sort of for an outlet for maybe underrated skaters or overlooked skaters. Um, any, uh, and maybe I'm not uh, wording that correctly, but. No, I think that's, any, pretty, that's pretty accurate. Any, any reasoning with your career and your path how that happened for sure i mean i basically am 
multiplying what happened to me and trying to find other people that are similar to my story because I feel like the people that can identify with my story will be able to identify with these new team writer stories because I feel like the underdog, the underdog story, it's so relatable to me and I am so much zero that zero is that, you know, by, by just the pure nature of it that, you know, zero is a direct reflection of my thoughts, my ideas, my vision and for better or worse. And, and I want to find people that are younger, better versions of me that I can, you know, nurture and help support and help them flourish like people helped me. And so it's just a cycle, you know, and then when they grow up and they are self-sufficient and, you know, if they have dreams and goals and aspirations that are beyond what we're doing, they move on and do other things. Eric Ellington, you know, Jim Greco, those guys leave for Baker, then they start Death Wish, you know, um, those things have a, you know, there's a there's an expiration date to them because they're dreaming, they're continuing to dream. And then some people, they arrive at zero and they get the support and they feel the relationship and they just like being there. And they've been there for, you know, 10, 15 years. Um, so that that's the thing too. So it just kind of depends on the individual. But yeah, I've always been attracted to the underdog. If I turn on a sports game, <laughs> whoever's behind in the last five to 10 minutes, like I'm rooting for them. Yeah. You know, the other day that was the you know, rockets and the Timberwolves, and I was wanted to see the Timberwolves, you know, do mm -hmm. it. Um, so anyway, that's that's just the way I, I No, and I, and I as well. I mean, that's kind of cool. Um, but no, I mean, it just seems to be a real, true, organic, like everything you have done. Now, what is something that most people potentially misunderstand about you? Uh, I mean, I think that a lot of people, you know, depict me to be very, um, I don't know, overbearing and controlling. And I think that I've had serious waves of that in my life. And it's generally when I feel that there's a, you know, chance of things going sideways or I'm like not, not, not secure with what's happening or whatever, I, I usually become a more extreme version of myself. But as I've gotten older, um, I feel like I've mellowed out a bit and, I kind of let things take their natural course and I just try and nudge them and encourage them and keep them on path. And, um, I feel like that's, that's helped. Um, other than that, I don't, I don't, you know, not, not really anything comes to mind. Maybe I'm blanking out on well, you know, no, analyzing think, or criticizing. No, no. And I think, well, for me, I think you like always, like I don't get starstruck by anybody. I mean, not NFL. My parents were both athletes. Like we had professional athletes at our house all the time. Um, my dad was sponsoring golfers with them. It wasn't ever an issue, but with, but, and, and I'm not starstruck by you, <laughs> but you have, where you go with this, you doesn't. have this sort of, you do have, um, a mystery and like, just like an awe, like I have an awe factor for you because of all that you've done and you continue to do. And I don't mean that to embarrass you, you know? So I feel like maybe there's, you know, there's a, there's a huge, there's been a whole path for you to get to where you're at. And it's not always been easy. Um, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know what to say about that. Sorry, I don't know. No, I don't, I don't, <laughs> uh, too emotional. No, no. I mean, <laughs> as, as far as that goes, I, I think that in order for anyone to be in awe of anyone else, they're just, they're just adding up the things that. They, I respect, that, I should say. Yeah, no, the, yeah. They're adding up the things that they understand and can connect with over the period, over the, 
you know, time period of whatever you've done and created. And that's, you know, the way it is for me. Like when I first saw Matt Hensley, I was like, you know, I can't believe that I'm seeing you in real life. And the reason was is because I looked up to his skating to such, you know, a degree. And I had appreciated all the things that he had done and the way he had done things. And, you know, I mean, that, that, that just is what it is. And the more someone has done, the, you know, the kind of the easier it is to kind of be put in a place where you're taken back that, you know, they're there. And you, you, I don't know. Sometimes you also see people and they're larger than life. Like Chad Muska is one of those people, you know, he's larger than life. And when you're around him, he has, I mean, he's, he's what you kind of described as me. I'm, I feel like I'm a, there's a lot of me out there. There's a lot of interviews. I feel like to say I'm a mystery, you know, I'm not trying to disagree, but it's a long shot. Cause I've just, I just talked and babbled when my way through interview and interview. And then there's some people that are, you know, enigmas, you can't get enough of them. Like, you know, Daniel Harold Sturt, they're just like MIA. They're yeah. MIA, yeah. you know? And sometimes I wish I had that MIA quality, you know, and I just, it's just not my style though. I just keep doing on a daily basis and I just try and stay steady and consistent. And you know, that, that works for me. It doesn't work for other people, but that's, that's my deal. And then a new interview coming out, hopefully in the <laughs> barracks from uh, Dave Swift, right? After the 95, and then have another one. I saw that post. <laughs> okay. Swift. <laughs> yeah. I don't know Swift though. He's working, he's working for the barracks mag, yeah. but um, yeah, I've talked to the guys at trans world about trying to do an interview in one day. And I think that I would, you know, bring some friends along and make it a little bit more of a fun project if I were to do it. But I, I think it's doable. I mean, I, you, you just kind of have to break down how many tricks you got to get in one day on photo, you know, photos and video in order to make it, you know, really look like you did it. So um, it's doable, though. And I was just asking the, the people what they do, but it's not really fair to ask my fans if they think I could do it or not, because they're my fans. They're going to encourage me. You know, they're not going to be like, no way you can't do it. Yeah. Um, well, no, but I mean, I think that every, I mean, I, what, what about a book? Have you thought about a book? I thought about a book, but it seems very time consuming. And for what, you know, I don't really know what the end purpose would be. I, I'm, I don't like, I, I am vain and I, you know, I do, I am whatever I'm, I don't know, I guess self-involved or, or whatever, you know, as, as that's, that's real, but I narcissistic even, but I, I try and like, I just don't know why I would make a book this point i mean it'd be cool to see a book but like to read a book about myself i'm not i'm not you know and, or to like i don't know and then if someone were to come to me i was like i want to make a book on you i want to ghostwrite it it's going to be amazing and they have this crazy vision for it that's one thing but for me to be like <clears throat> going and turning over rocks to find someone to make my book yeah it just doesn't seem it like sounds it. weird yeah. yeah it just it doesn't no, seem I, like my style or what i'm into and right now i want to i want to find a way to continue to grow and evolve you know what i mean and i'm not really trying to like you know like check out my past everybody you know like no but i think your past uh, also um amplifies everything that you have done as well in different ways because think, there's been and i say that because there have been the ups and the downs there have been some wonderful amazing times there have been some tough times you know um and i think for me again the underdog story you know of like your path has been has been very inspiring I appreciate that. And I, I feel like the podcast is kind of the start for me to be able to, you know, kind of bridge that past, bridge that past to now and, and then, and talk to other people and kind of hear their stories. And I don't know, you know, I, I, I don't know if, 
you know, if a book makes sense or what. I just I just know that it takes a lot of time too, and I don't really have it. Like right now on a, with the podcast, I can do it one day a week, you know, and then that work. Um, but you know, doing a book is a big undertaking, and yeah, I don't know. I just don't I just don't see the the, the purpose in it. I, I kind of I met with Sean Mortimer and talked about a book. Um, oh, I was thinking. Yeah, so I was thinking Sean would be good. Yeah, we met about it, and and he just, you know, kind of warned me at how much time and work and effort it takes. And then we talked about a podcast and then I just ended up like, hey, let's make a podcast instead. It was kind of like a quicker, shorter, more now version of that. And I just kind of think that I'll do that for a little bit and see how that goes. And, you know, maybe a book will make sense some sometime down the road, but, you know, it's not, it's not going to help me like take care of the family right now or open up any doors or opportunities that I'm looking to open up. So, I just can't see the reasoning for investing that kind of time into that project. But I feel like you're right. The the past does, you know, help make whatever I'm doing now more relevant. And But that kind of goes without saying. I don't really need to go and tell people all about it. Yeah. Even in social media, like, I'm trying to find this, like, um, you know, happy place or this, this you know, uh, comfortable zone of, you know, telling stories from the past, sharing what I'm doing now, and then sharing about other people and trying to like keep that balanced, you know, to where it's not like, hey, check me out. Hey, check me out some more. Check me out again. Check me out again and again. Yeah, it gets old. Yeah. So it's kind of like, hey, here's me. Here's what I'm up to. Here's a backstory on something. Here's my gratitude and appreciation for things. Here's my friend. Here's my other friend. Here's, you know, and I just try and keep it, keep it rotating in that order you know I feel like there's a certain level of me that people want to see my fans want to see and so I try and give them that but then also share the things that I'm into and I think that's what this podcast is all about as well it's not really all about me you know it's about me trying to embark on this new journey in my life and learn how to interview people and learn how to not be the guy trying to learn how to ask questions to people that I think are way cooler than me so you know I started off with a good group of people I mean, there's a few I've seen. Yeah, um, the first season is uh, Muska, Ed Templeton. Um, I did Chris Jocelyn's. I did an interview for Chris jo- or for Thrasher of Chris, and um, he's got a very interesting story. So he's got a shorter episode. Um, and then I did Eric Ellington, Matt Hoffman, uh, Bobby Hundreds, um, and then uh, Keith Hoffnagel. Oh, um, right. Yeah, and then the closer is Rodney Mullen. Okay, well, I was going to ask or was gonna, if it was going to be Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan. I think that's a bit bit much for me right now. <laughs> well, I, I, hey, you're one to always reach for the stars. I know, <laughs> but I, I, it's a it's a seasonal project. I so, <laughs> Sorry, so I'm tr- I threw that. <laughs> I feel like I don't even know what I'm doing. Like when I listen back to the interviews and when I'm, when I'm putting it together, I feel like it's, you know, like the first Toy Machine video or like my first video part. I'm just like, I'm already embarrassed by it in the sense that, you know, I kind of dive in and I just figure things out as I go and I don't like do all the research and I don't do things in a very like, you know, responsible and proactive way. I just kind of dive in and that's just my approach to things. And that pain of sucking is what really inspires me to stop and was inspires me to get better at something. And I feel like the the learning curve is very fast because I really hate that feeling of sucking or sounding, you know, that's why I'm dropping four on the first day. So I can, I can go from like sucking, (laughs) I can go from sucking really bad to like not so bad in the first like day if someone binge listens. Okay. And date. 
Is there a specific date already? We're looking for early May, so oh. we're only a few weeks away. Oh, okay. So yeah. this is coming the, up real quick. Yeah, they're all um, they're all filmed. We just have we're just in editing mode right now. So okay. Yeah, so we're looking at first or second week of May, hopefully for the first four episodes. All right. So stay tuned uh, for Jamie's podcast that's coming out. Uh, Going to drop uh, first week of May. Uh, definitely want to follow him on Instagram uh, at Jamie Thomas. Now, Jamie, since uh, this is the show, the show tagline, my show tagline is first downs and flip tricks. I, I mean, I know that, I know that you've been to a lot of Alabama Roll Tide games, um, and have some affiliation with, or some well, I mean, love, in, or what? Now, what? If you you're know? from Alabama, you're either an Alabama fan or an Auburn, or an Auburn fan. fan. Well, that's and just, you've lived closer to Auburn, though. That's what's so crazy. Yeah, but it's Auburn like, wasn't it, that good back then. No, no, it's not really about what's good. <laughs> and it, ironically, my sister went to Auburn, but I wasn't really a sports fan at all growing up. You know. Being a sports fan was the opposite of skateboarding, you know. When Except I, for Rocky. In the early 90s. No, yeah, sorry. but that was like, that was more of like a, you know, just, I don't know. I'm ins- Inspiration. <laughs> but I was, you know, Mike Tyson, Jordan, all those guys on television, that was one thing. But local, you know, local games and getting involved in seasons and following sports teams in the seasons was never really a thing for me. And I wasn't even into, you know, football, you know, until... I had a friend, a really good friend that I worked with at Black Box for, you know, the entirety of our time there, um, Chad Foreman. Mm-hmm. And he basically, he grew up an Alabama fan. His father was a huge Alabama fan and his father got sick. And we used to go back to Alabama and see his father and watch football games with him. And Chad did this all the time. And I did it a few times and it just really enriched the experience for me. And it gave me an appreciation for the team. And, you know, that was around the time Saban was coming over. and. You know, that dynasty is, you know, it's it's obviously, um, you know, it speaks for itself. Um, but it was just kind of a, I kind of just fell into, you know, understanding the culture and seeing how awesome, you know, and I, I, I had done, you know, book reports on Bear Bryant as a kid and stuff because, you know, you grew up in Alabama, you need to have some understanding for the culture that is around you. Mm-hmm. Um, but at any rate, I um, I wasn't a huge Alabama fan until my some, one of my close friends you know, got me into it. And then I started watching, you know, full seasons and what, you know, we got, we had parties for the games and, you know, and then you get a couple of national you know, titles. titles under your belt. And then you're kind of, you know, becoming more of a fan as you see how amazing this lineage of, you know, football is, you know, we got to see the Alabama Auburn game you know, a few years ago. Wow. That was an amazing game. Wait, we didn't see the new one. The new one was, it was amazing, but not in our favor. Um, yeah. And that, that's always the game that no matter how good Alabama is, they could still lose that one because that rivalry is really, really strong. So at any rate, that's that's it. I mean, I've, I've you know, I like whatever in the 80s, I like the Cowboys or something, you know, probably mm-hmm. just because that was what was happening on, you know, as a little kid, like, whoa, the Cowboys and then the cheerleaders. Because they had their dynasty. Yeah. Oh, and there's cheerleaders. Yeah, and the yeah, cheerleaders. Too. Too. Yeah. So yeah, I've, I've never really gotten too into football. I go to flag football games every Friday night, FNL, uh-huh. down in our way, because my daughter and both my sons play flag football. Yeah. Um, super into it. They love it. And uh, my daughter's probably more into it than everybody because she gets to shine in a, you know, in a time. There's never been a better time to be a girl. Yeah, I was a running back on the boys team. That's awesome. That's so I, I mean, I, you know, it's, it's, that's cool. Yeah. Uh, but, and what I like is what you shared about going back to Chad and his dad's house and watching the games at the house. That's why I like it. Yeah. Is my connection. It's like family. Yeah. Um, you know, and ours is with the USC, you know, I was raised going to all those games. And so, but still I have to call for every touchdown and my mom has to sit in another room if, 
if USC's losing or if USC's <laughs> winning, she's got to stay in the same spot she's at, or she's got to put her wine glass down, or you know, it's it's yeah. you know, um, but it's it's family, and that's what you kind of hit on. Well, it's tradition as well. I mean, yeah, there's, sports are tradition because they're going to be there every single season, you know, and it's easy to set your traditions with your family traditions in line with the sports teams because. They're the family team. time too. Yeah, yeah, it is, and and it's the good thing too is like you know like Thanksgiving weekend. It's like a huge football weekend, and you and have, Cowboys always play. Yeah, and <laughs> you have and you have time off. You know, you have time off from the other things in life because everybody's taking time off. You know, and it's hard to turn on the television and not see a sports game on. You know, especially football. So, um, yeah, I, I appreciate those things. As a kid, I, you know, I was going outside and skating. I didn't care about sports at all. I was like, and I played sports. I played, you know, baseball and soccer growing up. Pitcher? Yeah, I was a pitcher and shortstop. How did I know? And shortstop, I was going to say. I don't know. That's you, funny. Oh, you sorry. got freakish. <laughs> I'm a dork. Yeah. Uh, that's cool. That's cool. Well, um, and what now on Sundays? Do you, I mean, do you have a rooting team though in the NFL at all? No. Okay. I mean, I didn't think so. I know you mentioned. Well, Cowboys my kids get really into it. My, my uh, oldest son is, his name is Julian. He's 14. He does fantasy football and he, you know, keeps me updated on who's doing what, but you know, fantasy football is per player, not, not per team. Yeah. You know? So he, um, he keeps me updated on who's doing what, how they're doing it. And then his, you know, he has, we, we have three kids, uh, Trey's, almost 10, Ruby's 12, and our son Julian's 14. And um, the youngest one, you know, he wants to know everything that the oldest one knows. Trey Trey wants to know everything Julian knows. So he basically just keeps up, too. So they're just talking football nonstop. And then basketball season starts, they start talk basketball. It's just like, you know, they have a, a game on constantly. And so I, I'm picking things up, but I'm either, like, you know, on my phone or on, you know, my computer or my laptop, just kind of spending time hanging out with them, listening to whatever it is they have to talk about. You know, and they're getting jerseys and, you know, whatever. They're, they're really into it. And I'm, I'm kind of like vicariously Crazy into living. it. That's yeah. cool. All right, you guys, we have all the time we got for tonight. I'm super, super thankful to Jamie Thomas for coming in, making a two and three hour drive to get here today. Um, you guys for tuning in for Cole running the boards and, you know, again, follow Jamie uh, on Instagram. There's a ton of stuff going on. His podcast, especially right now, dropping a video coming out in five and a half months uh, and a slew of other things. This is the Desiree show on Dash Radio and I'm out.